All right, so uh, uh, this fall we're doing a sermon series called After God's Own Heart on the Life of David, the boy who was anointed and became king. And so we're going to be looking at his rise and then his fall and how his whole life points beyond himself from beyond King David to an ancestor of his, the, the king of kings. So David prepares us for and helps us to understand the one who is the king of kings. And so two weeks ago, the last sermon I gave was on the most famous incident in David's life, the story of David and Goliath. And our passage this morning comes immediately on the heels of that encounter. And so right now, David's star is rising and Saul's is falling. But one of the things we see with David and with Saul is that you can learn a lot from someone's rise, but you can also learn almost maybe even more during someone's fall. And so we're going to look at three things in our passage this morning. David's friend, David's foe, and David's favor. So what Jonathan teaches us about being a friend, and what Saul teaches us about being a foe, and what David teaches us about what it means to live in and from God's favor. All right, so first, Jonathan and David and friendship. And when you think about friendship, immediately probably your mind jumps to this question, okay, who are my friends or who is my best friend? And it's a difficult question, personally, especially the the older I get, the harder it is to answer that question. Friendship seems to come more easily when we're younger and we're spending most of our time in an environment when we're constantly surrounded by our peers, And friendship is an integral part of early childhood. Before anything like romantic love gets in the way and starts messing things up. Right? When we're young, we we, we look for friends who are just proximate to us. People who are around us and people who we can play with and people who will tolerate us or whose company we enjoy, whose interests we share, who take an interest in us. When we're kids, the bar for friendship is very low. And childhood friendship is one thing, but adult friendship is another. And normally, the older you get, the smaller your circle of friends becomes. People have less time. They have more responsibility. And strictly speaking, this is the thing about friendship, the rub about friendship, is that friends aren't necessary. Right? They're not necessary for the survival of the species. Friends are, in that sense, gratuitous. But gratuitous, of course, has its root in the word grace. Right? We need romantic love, eros, so that we can make babies. We need familial love and affection so that we will take care of those babies when they're driving us crazy, whether that's because they won't sleep through the night or they're a teenager who thinks that they know everything and their parents know nothing. Romantic love and family love are the most natural loves. They're the most necessary. And because the love between friends serves no such natural purpose, I believe that's the reason why in our day and age it is the most neglected and devalued of loves. And this is the exact opposite of how love was valued in the ancient world. And so in preparation for the sermon, I I reread C.S. Lewis's chapter from The Four Loves on friendship. And it's, it's worth reading again and again. And according to Lewis, it was precisely the unnaturalness, 
the unnatural nature, the unnecessary status of friendship that caused it to be the most highly prized form of love in the ancient world. Right? When it comes to our families and our lovers, we human beings, we, we sort of, we can't help ourselves. There's this irresistible biological drive. But the bonds of friendship are chosen. They aren't based on sheer biology. And for that reason, the ancients saw that they had a, a peculiarly spiritual character. They allowed us human beings to rise above our merely animal instincts. Lewis writes, friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. So friendship has no survival value, but it is one of those things which gives value to survival. And the true genesis of friendship comes when you meet that rare person who cares about the same truth as you. Lewis says the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought that I was the only one. And it's this kind of friendship love that we see between David and Jonathan in our passage. In verse 1, it says, As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. They are kindred spirits. When Jonathan meets David, he immediately meets a friend, and he has a what-you-two moment. See, we recall that David has just slain Goliath. David alone had the audacious courage to confront the Philistine while the rest of his countrymen and Jonathan's father were cowering in fear. David and Jonathan share in common this audacious courage in fighting for the Lord against impossible odds. And when we meet Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, he's on the battlefield. And, and, and what else is happening but the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. And they're totally overmatched and outgunned in this battle. And while Saul, we are told, was relaxing under a pomegranate tree, Jonathan came up with a plan. He, he, he told his armor bearer that what if we made a wild incursion behind Philistine lines? And before embarking on this mission, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come on now, let us go across to these uncircumcised pagans. Maybe the Lord will work for us. There's no rule that says that the Lord can only deliver by using a big army. No one can stop God from saving when he sets his mind to it. Who does Jonathan sound like? To me right there, he sounds a lot like David. Or rather, we could say when David fights Goliath, he sounds a lot like Jonathan. Jonathan goes on this seeming suicide mission, and he winds up defeating 20 Philistine soldiers, which precipitates this battle, which is a rout for the Israelites. And so when we know that, it's easy to understand why when Jonathan sees David, he sees a kindred spirit. He sees someone who sees the same truth as him, that God doesn't save through big armies or big weapons or big people, but instead through big faith. 
And so the first thing we learn about friendship from David and Jonathan is that being a friend means being a kindred spirit. It means seeing and caring for the same truth. And the second aspect of friendship we see is that it's covenantal, which is another way of saying that it involves a commitment that will not be broken by life's circumstances. In verse 4 it says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. We will come to see that life circumstances will test this friendship. They will test this commitment to the extreme. Jonathan's father is going to spend much of the rest of his life trying to kill David. And despite that fact, Jonathan will never betray David. The saying is true that when your life is going good, your friends learn who you are. But when life goes sideways, you learn who your friends are. When the going gets tough, real friends keep covenant. They keep the connection. They keep the relationship. They won't abandon you. And the covenantal nature of friendship is so important because a real friendship can and it must survive testing. It must survive conflict. We're going to see that next week. But one of the things that makes friendship so hard is that because it's unnecessary, it's easier to walk away from. But what makes real friendship so powerful is knowing that while your friend could have walked away from you, they never will. Real friendship friendship then is marked by being kindred spirits and by, by a covenant commitment. And the last thing we learn about the nature of friendship from David and Jonathan is when Jonathan gives David his robe and his armor and his weapons. What's happening here is Jonathan isn't just humbling himself. He's lifting David up. Real friendship involves a radical equality that removes distinctions and and it flattens each and every hierarchy. Friendships can't be shared by people who stand on different ground and who run in different circles. Friendship can only be shared by people who are willing and able to put off whatever they need to put off in order to stand on equal ground footing, in order to stand shoulder to shoulder and side by side. And Jonathan was the son of the king, right? He was born on third base. He was rich. He was powerful. He was successful. As far as he knew it, he could be next in line to the throne. And the text tells us earlier that that the Philistines, one of the ways they kept the Israelites in check was they made sure there were no blacksmiths in Israel, so they couldn't get access to the good weapons, And so Saul and Jonathan, when it talks about him giving their armor, well, they were the only ones who had that to give. And here Jonathan takes off his armor. He gives it to David in order to say, you are my friend. And there's no difference in standing between you and me. Right? True friends friends stand on level ground, and they do whatever they need to do to make that ground level. The English word peer comes from the Latin par, meaning equal. And so friends see the same truth. They're committed to one another, and they relate as equals. So from Jonathan and David, we we, we learned the true nature of the lost art of friendship. 
But now we have to turn to a much less edifying, but no less instructive relationship. We learn what it means to be a foe, to be or to have an enemy in Saul's jealousy toward David. His jealousy is kindled when he hears the lyrics to a song that he does not like. Scripture tells us that Saul was returning home from the battlefield after David defeated Goliath, and the women come out in celebration to meet Saul and sing a song of victory, sort of their version of we are the champions. Saul has struck down his thousands, and Saul hears that, and that is music to his ears. And he's waiting for the second line, because in Hebrew poetry, the second line always repeats and then intensifies the first. So it's going to be even better what Saul does. And David his tens of thousands. Insert record scratch sound right there. When Saul hears that, he is displeased, would be putting it lightly, because in his mind's eye, all that's left now because of this song is to give David his kingdom. And this song releases into the spirit of Saul the destructive virus of jealousy which is the thing that eventually destroys him. And what we see in Saul is that jealousy is this toxic cocktail mixed together of fear and anger. You put those together, you mix them up, you pour them out, you've got jealousy. Saul's afraid, and he's angry. And he's going to pour it out on David. And fear almost always focuses on loss. If we think about fear, what is fear related to? Fear is related to loss. We become afraid when we think that we might lose something that we value, whether that's our life or our job or our health or some relationship. And so Saul is afraid that David's going to take the kingdom from him. That's what he, he values most, and he's afraid that David's going to take that away. And, and he doesn't know anything about David's anointing at this point. He doesn't know anything about God rejecting him and choosing David. Saul has good reason to be afraid. But again, he's afraid of the wrong thing. He should be most afraid of the corruption that has seeped into his own heart. So Saul's afraid, but more than that, he's angry. And he's he's so angry that two times he'll fling a spear at David to try to pin him to the wall. And so fear has to do with loss. But anger almost always has to do with this sense of we're being blocked from getting what we want. We get angry when we don't get what we want. And this can be as prosaic as a parking spot or, or as, as profound as justice. Though the injustice of not getting a parking spot that we've been waiting for is almost always the cause of furious anger. Saul is angry that he's not getting what he wants most, and David is getting it, and he's not even trying. And what Saul wants most that he's not getting is the approval of of the people. And that's what led God to reject Saul in the first place, that Saul listened to the vox populi, the voice of the people, rather than the vox dei, the voice of God. And so we see in Saul that the acids of jealousy are born from the combination of fear of losing what you have to someone else and the anger of not being able to get what you want and seeing someone else getting it, you know, fear Or jealousy is fear plus anger directed at another person. And we see something else about jealousy, that that when it gets a hold of someone, it takes on this power of its own. That's what's going on in verse 10, where it says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. 
while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. So when Saul replaced his desire for God's love and approval with his desire for love and approval of others, he created a vacuum. A vacuum that was filled not with the spirit of God, but a spirit from God. The spirit is God allowing the natural consequences of Saul's jealousy to take control. Jealousy is the destructive combination of fear and anger, and when jealousy gets a foothold in our hearts, it takes on a demonic life of its own. And the last thing we learn is that jealousy leaves us isolated. By the end of this passage, Saul is completely and utterly alone. The more jealous Saul is of David, the more everyone loves David. And the more, the more people love David, the more alone Saul becomes. So by the end of this passage, Saul's son loves David. Saul's troops love David. The women of Israel love David. We're told that at the end of this passage, we didn't read this, but Saul's daughter Michael loves David. And all Israel and Judah love David. The only person who doesn't love David is Saul. And so he's left all alone in his jealousy, and it's an alienation that will only continue to increase as his life and his rule continue this downward spiral. All right, so we've seen the, 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 the uplifting power of friendship and, 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 and the dark destructive power of being an enemy of jealousy that, that drags us down. But the last thing we're going to look at this morning is God's favor what it means to live in and from God's favor. Because in the midst of this passage, David doesn't say anything, but that's where he is. He is in God's favor. We learn that whatever he does, he's successful. And the source of his success, which is repeated a few times, is that the Lord was, or the Lord is with him. And what does David do to earn this success? Nothing. Nothing. All David does is act faithfully in the midst of the circumstances where God places him. That's all he does. Saul puts him in charge of his elite bodyguards. David is faithful in that duty. Right? Saul's jealousy drives him into a fit of rage. So much that he tries to kill David. David faithfully plays the lyre to calm his spirits. Saul sets David in charge of a regular company of soldiers. David faithfully does that. David's success comes from living in the Lord's favor, and the Lord's favor comes simply from David acting faithfully right where he is. And the beautiful thing about that is God does not call us to be great. He doesn't call us to be spectacular. He doesn't call us to pursue excellence. All that God needs to do great things is faithful service. And we see that when David lives in God's favor, his life operates according to one of the greatest biblical principles that there is. The principle of reverse returns. Reverse returns. The principle is is beautifully stated by one commentator like this way. He says, the more God's enemies resist his will, the more success God's children experience. So the more Saul attempts to work against David, the more he advances God's purposes against his own wishes. It wasn't in our reading this morning, but at the end of the chapter, Saul uses the prospect of of marrying his daughter as a trap to lure David on a suicide mission. He says, collect from the Philistines, get a hundred Philistine 
foreskins and you can marry my daughter. This is kind of a gruesome task, but it doesn't seem to deter David. And so David goes out, and not only does he come back with 100, but he returns with 200 trophies from the Philistines. Gross, but it illustrates the point. The greater Saul's opposition, the greater the reverse returns of David. But this is how God works. This is not surprising. Pharaoh tried to order the slaughter of the Israelite children to stop the growth of their population, and their growth only expanded. In the story of Esther, Haman, the Persian official, tries to order the extermination, try to trick the king into killing all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And instead, it was Esther, a Jew, who became queen, and Haman, who found himself at the gallows. And the place we see this principle most at play is in the life of Jesus. Throughout his his ministry, the more opposition to him grows from the religious leaders, the greater his fame is. And when Jesus faces the greatest opposition of all, right, the the leaders of, of the greatest empire the world has ever known, with the greatest religion the world has ever known, putting him to death on a cross, God's purposes are not thwarted, they're fulfilled. The principle of reverse returns, far from stopping Jesus, were actually the means whereby he accomplished his mission. And this continued in the early church. We read this in Acts, right? The authorities try to stamp out the church, persecuting it in Jerusalem. And they send out the first Christian missionaries into the world. In the 20th century, the Chinese government, Cultural Revolution, expels the Western missionaries from China. We're going to stamp out this Western imperialist religion. And what happens is the gospel takes root through indigenous leaders in indigenous churches. It's the principle of reverse returns. And there's a beautiful story of this from the life of of John Perkins, who was a pastor in the South. He's still alive, and, and he worked for civil rights. And he tells this incredible story of a night when he was arrested and he was beaten and, and, and the police in Mississippi used this occasion as, as an excuse to try to trap him and his followers and beat them and intimidate them and basically tell them, keep your heads down, keep quiet, you're not going to be working for this here. And he was in jail and it stirred this hatred in his heart. Who are these people that they, you know, would do this to me? And, and they bear the name of Christian, yet here they are, you know, beating uh, my brothers and sisters who are working for justice. And, and then he had this conversion moment that this hatred in his heart turned to love towards these police officers who were abusing and beating him and, and, and his fellow civil rights workers because he said that the pernicious power of sin was operating in the hearts of these policemen who were tormenting him. And so that they needed the gospel just as much as anyone else. And so he said, through their hatred, they tried to deter him from working through intimidation and fear. But he said, instead, all it did was plant in me and increase in me a love for the folks who would perpetrate this. A desire to share with them a gospel that would liberate them from the blindness brought about by their racism. He says, the more that they hated him, the more he loved them. That's the principle of reverse returns. 
in real, actual life. So brothers and sisters, be a friend and not a foe and live in God's favor, trusting that all God needs from us to accomplish his purposes is faithfulness. That's the secret to David's success and ours as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.